If you will, please turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we won't be covering the entire chapter this morning. It's 56 verses. We can't get to all of that. We're going to leave the feeding for the, of the 5,000 men for some other time when I uh, get to stand before you and again teach from the book of Mark. I just wanted to point out that uh, this in the Christian calendar is Palm Sunday. Um, uh, forgive me if this sounds like heresy, I'm about to ruin your favorite day, uh, perhaps, but uh, it's, it was actually Palm Monday when Jesus entered uh, uh, Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, my, my colleague, Dr. Harold Honer, who is, who is home with the Lord now, uh, a, a scholar's scholar, uh, wrote a book called uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And uh, it so happens that uh, he's, he's worked out the entire chronology of, of the apostolic age as well. But uh, in this, he says that uh, the first Easter was April 5th of 33 A.D. Now, next Sunday is April 5th. So, interestingly enough, our calendar happens to coincide with what 33 A.D. looked like. So, at least you can... Say this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, it moves around in our in the Christian calendar because of the lunar calendar and so on. We won't get into that, but but uh, I also wanted to point out this: the, this is Palm Sunday. Now we had had to have it on a Sunday because that's when people come to church. But it was actually the following day. But we. We won't quibble, will we? <laughs> At any rate, Jesus rose from the dead on April 5th, 33 A.D. Now, uh, we can quibble over when he was crucified, when it was Wednesday, if it was Wednesday or if it was Friday. I think it was Friday, but uh, Harold Honer makes that, uh, that case. You can pull down his book on Kindle if you care to read it. It's called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. Uh, so, uh, the title of my message this morning is, spoiler alert, uh, rejection ahead. Uh, that's because chapter 6 is actually a, a blatant foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus during uh, this week, during the Passion Week, that Jesus would be rejected and the way Mark does this is he shows uh, 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 Jesus being rejected, John the Baptist re being rejected, and allows for the possibility of the, of the twelve being rejected on their mission as he sends them out two by two, which we'll cover as we get there. So this is why I've titled it Spoiler Alert, Rejection Ahead, uh, because uh, Mark is actually betraying where the story is going. By chapter 8 or so, chapter 9, uh, Jesus is going to be predicting to his followers that he's going to be rejected and betrayed, crucified, and resurrected. And, and the disciples are going to be saying, uh, you had us at betrayed, what was that? Uh, and they really didn't understand how God was going to work out his plan. But now let's, uh, let's consider the structure of this section of Mark 6. We're going to go from verse 1 to verse 32 or so. <clears throat> verse 30 really kind of ends the discussion of the disciples, but we, we need that segue there at the end as well. Um, verses 1 to 6 
detail Jesus being rejected at Nazareth, uh, which is not so named in the passage, but it says it's his hometown. So let's say rejected at Nazareth, verses 1 to 6. And then the disciples are sent out in verses 7 to 13. And that's followed up by the disciples' return in verses 30 to 32. But in between, we have the story of Herod and John the Baptist. This sad story, this heinous crime, uh, something about which I, I still get angry when I hear about this. There are some things that still bother me, like the burning of the library at Alexandria. Uh, but, uh, but this one really takes the cake for me is, is uh, John the Baptist being murdered. Not, I mean, aside from Jesus being uh, railroaded through, uh, through the, the trials, I'll put trials in air quotes, uh, just the heinous crime that was committed against Jesus, that takes the cake. But John the Baptist is, is very much a, a very close second in terms of what really has me riled up still. Uh, God's going to come back and set all that straight soon enough. Um, not soon enough for me, I think. <coughs> At any rate, the disciples return in verses 30 to 32, and, and Herod and John constitute the biggest chunk of our passage, actually, so this diagram is not to scale. Um, but you see that Mark has done his sandwich technique again where he'll start one story and then insert another and then end it with uh, something that's going on. Just the way we saw last week with the healing of Jairus' daughter and the woman with the flow of blood interrupting the thing. Uh, <clears throat> Mark didn't have to tell the story that way. He could have told it another way. So the fact that he tells the story that way shows you that he wants you to compare those stories. Just so... With, uh, with this story. So I want to start with the disciples being sent out. Um, but if we could, uh, another way to, to put this is verses 1 to 6 are about rejection and verses 7 to 13 are about ministry. And then verses 14 to 29 are about rejection and verses 30 to 32 are also about ministry. So this is a rejection, ministry, alternation here in the passage we're looking at. And so I've boiled this down to two basic words here. One is expectation and the other is rejection. Expectation and rejection. And so I want to start with the expectation motif here uh, because I want you to see how Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about how to do their mission, how to do ministry, if you will, how to do their service for God in the midst of what they're going to face because he's facing rejection and John the Baptist is facing rejection. So what should one expect service for God to be like? And I say service for God here on the slide because when it, whenever someone says ministry, they think guy in a suit you know, standing up here and they go, that's ministry. Ministry is not standing up here and preaching. Ministry is everything that we do for God. Everything that God does for the world through us because we are His representatives. You know, so, so you may be a lawyer, uh, but really you're a minister described as, uh, uh, disguised as a lawyer. 
I, I know, I'm, I picked the wrong profession, didn't I? But <laughs> No matter what your occupation, you are a minister of Jesus Christ disguised as whatever it is that you're disguised as. You see, we're all in full-time Christian ministry. Now, some of us are in vocational ministry, but every Christian is in full-time Christian service, as we like to say. Now, Mark is not emphasizing that, but I want you to see how we connect to this uh, <clears throat> this morning. So, uh, we start with the disciples being sent out. I'm, gonna, I'm starting there because I want you to see how this story relates to the rejection stories of both Jesus and uh, John the Baptist. So, we'll start at verse 7. He summoned the twelve, that's his twelve main disciples, and he began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. <clears throat> and uh, if we were going to be facile with our uh, with our application, we would say, you're not allowed to wear two shirts. So, you know, if you're wearing an undershirt, take that off, right? No, that's not, of course, that's not what's going on here. Tough crowd here this morning, sorry. <laughs> and these provisions are not intended that, to say that, that the people, that, that the 12 are to remain poor. Uh, quite the contrary. This, is, this doesn't have, have anything to do with wearing clothes or, or being rich or poor. This has to do with the urgency of the message, the urgency of the message, urgency of the mission that he's sending them out on. And so verses 8 through, uh, eight through 10 emphasize uh, the need to rest in God for their provision. That is, he's sending these men out with the message of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. We're going to see what that message is in a moment in verses 12 and 13. But he's sending them out by way of saying, okay, you know all that normal stuff you do when you're going to go on a trip, you're going to take a bag with you, you're going to put bread in the bag, you're going to keep money with you so you can buy whatever you need. He says, don't do that. Guys, I need you guys to go throughout the villages in Galilee. I need you to carry this message to, to the people in Galilee. And there's just no time to get all ready for this. And a single tunic and no bag also calls to mind that uh, prophetic dress, if you will, of Elijah and John the Baptist. You remember Elijah's just walking around with his hair shirt on. And a, uh, and, a, and a staff, perhaps. And John the Baptist is playing that same part, too. So it's this unencumberedness of these men as they go out to present the gospel uh, of the kingdom in Galilee that's being emphasized in verses uh, 8 and 9. But it continues here. Verse 10 says, And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Now, by the way, I just have to back up for a second and say, these are not timeless principles for ministry. In other words, the instructions themselves are, are, are not binding on every missionary 
or every minister of the gospel in that sense. There are some principles. There, are, there is a situation here that Jesus is putting them in that can be derived from what's happening. But Mark doesn't seem to suggest that this is normative either. Uh, so Jim doesn't have to stay in one place until he leaves town, in other words. Uh, I don't think we need to take this literally. But this is something very interesting about this is what's assumed in verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. It's that someone is going to support the ministry. Isn't that great? There's hope. Actually, you know, I've already set you up for depressing message here. Rejection ahead, you know. Uh, but there is hope. You see, there's, there's multiple kinds of people in this passage here. There are the people doing the ministry. There's the 12. They're the people going out. And then there's the people supporting the ministry. These are the, the people in verse 10 who are assumed to be taking the, the 12 in as they travel from one uh, village in Galilee to another. And then there's another kind of person in this passage who we will see later in a moment here uh, as we move further in the passage. We're going to see the third kind of person is the person who benefits from the ministry. And all, all of those kinds of people are to be seen in this passage here. So these are part of the expectations of what ministry is going to be like. That is, that you have to, uh, uh, that you have to depend on God's provision. That there are going to be people who uh, do help, who will support, and that's something very interesting as well. Is that God doesn't typically do things the way He did with. The Exodus generation where manna just rains down from heaven. You know how he normally provides for people is through other people. And so normally the way people, the, normally the way God provides for the needs of people he sends out to do the work, the full-time work, <coughs> or even part-time work that's done full-time, uh, is that he will provide through his people for people he's sending out. So he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. I think as well, it's, it's don't, don't hop from one place to another. If, if you don't like the way she cooks the broccoli, okay, just you don't try to go someplace else where the food is a little better. Okay, I think that may be part of the idea that's going on here. Uh, <clears throat> if she served broccoli, no, no. Eat what's put in front of you. But now verse 11 says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. This is pretty graphic, isn't it? You just shake the dust, you know. Uh, if you're going to reject us, we're going to reject even the dust from our feet. We'll just shake it off there as a testimony against them. Now, uh, verse 10 was hopeful wasn't it? It was saying that God's going to provide for your needs. You, you guys, you disciples, as you go out and do my work, uh, uh, some people are going to take you in. There's going to be other villages where verse 11 says you're going to get a, a cold shoulder. No one's going to want to take you in. And that's when you just move on. You remain faithful to the calling that I've given you to preach the gospel in Galilee. 
and I'll, I'll take care of them. He doesn't say, by the way, call down fire from heaven on the village and, you know, stand back and watch for this thing. You know, uh, Jesus says, I'll, I'll take care of that. Okay, you, just, you guys just keep moving because we, we've got business to deal with here. So uh, verse 10 is the support. Verse 11 is rejection. And so this is part of the expectation of the, the fact that God is going to provide is also seen in contrast to the fact that there are going to be people who will reject this message. Now, receive and listen are also very closely related because when someone receives the, these disciples as they travel, they're listening to the message. So they're the first beneficiaries in that village of the, of the message of the gospel that they're teaching. Now, even though the instructions don't include this, we find in verse 12, it says, They went out and preached that men should repent. Now, that message has fallen on hard times these days, hasn't it? Uh, the stereotypical uh, preaching of, of the gospel is uh, God, God wants the highest and best for you and uh, uh, you'll have prosperity if only you will follow Jesus. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, oh yeah, there's that sin business. Um, never mind about that. Jesus paid for it. I think there's something to be said for telling people you're a sinner. You have a problem. We all have a problem. And for some reason, uh, people have decided that uh, if you tell me I'm a sinner, that's somehow offensive. And by golly, no one's going to offend me. Oh, and I imagine you're proud about that, right? Yes, as a matter of fact. Okay, let's talk about repentance. Um, you see what I mean is that, that uh, the, the way the world goes is they have, they have great ways of rejecting your message. But he says, they went out and preached that they should repent. If you want to summarize the heart of the gospel message, really repentance is part of it. Now, we're going to see in a moment that repentance is not the same thing as feeling sorry for sin. Feeling sorry for sin is not the same thing as repentance. We're going to find somebody who does feel sorry and he can't do anything about it. But Jesus was, was uh, put on the cross for our sins he died and was raised from the dead. And you need to change your mind about who Jesus is and how he can solve your problem. Your problem is you're going to hell. That's basically your problem, right? I mean that with all due respect, but we're all going to hell because we deserve... God's wrath. And it's only fair that a God who is absolutely righteous would condemn those who sin. Does that make sense? Certainly it makes sense if, if, uh, if you're a believer in Christ and you've experienced this repentance. But we need to tell people, Look, it's, it's not just bad decisions. It's not just you've got a problem. It's not just you aren't fulfilling your potential uh, in life or you have negative energy or something like that. That's, 
that's all part of the smokescreen the world has put around the gospel message. And we need to break out of that and say, listen, sin's a very real issue. Sin's a very real problem. And we, we all need Jesus to rescue us. And so what, what we need to say as we tell people about Jesus is, listen, you need to change your mind about, about how you're living. You need to change your mind about what your attitude is. You need to change your mind about how you treat people. <clears throat> now, I, don't get me wrong, you don't clean those things up to get saved, but you, you see all of these elements in your life that uh, displease God. And repentance means you turn away from all of those things to turn to Jesus. They're simultaneous, by the way. You can't turn away from sin without turning to Jesus. It's not like, let's, let me get off the bottle first and then come to Christ. You can't do that. So the message that we preach should be, change your mind about who Jesus is and your need for Him. Verse 13 continues, They were casting out many demons, and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Does this sound familiar? Isn't this what Jesus has been doing all along from about chapter 3 onward here? He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick. And so verse 7 starts by saying that Jesus gave them power over the unclean spirits, which He had just demonstrated in the previous chapter. Remember the Gerizane demoniac with a legion of demons. Jesus shows His power over demons. And so basically what's happening here is that the expectation of the ministry of the Twelve is that they will replicate what Jesus has been doing. They've been offering God's grace to, to people, repent. They've been offering God's grace to people, they've been healing them, they've been casting out demons. And then they've been telling people, repent. Now, repentance is a center as well, not only of the message that the disciples are preaching, but also the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. In verses, uh, in chapter 1 of Mark, verses 14 and 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Palm Monday. <laughs> Here's the king. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel being the good news that God's grace is sufficient to cover our sin. And that Jesus will be crucified for it. Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus says. Earlier in that same chapter, John the Baptist, verse 4 says... John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Sounds like John and Jesus are preaching more or less the same message, doesn't it? Nod your head, yes. Okay, yeah, that's good. You could say yes. Okay, good. They're preaching the same message, right? And, and you notice that after John was taken uh, a prisoner by Herod the king, Jesus carried on that message. 
And so we've talked about the expectation of ministry, of God's uh, provision for ministry, God's provision for His service, and uh, the expectation that, that these men would be in their ministry replicating the ministry of Jesus. That's also, by the way, what we're to do. We're supposed to imitate Jesus, aren't we? We are, we are supposed to embody who Jesus is in the circle of, of influence that we have been given. Uh, <clears throat> you've heard people say, somewhat tritely I would think, but uh, you're the only Bible some people will read. Uh, and and there's, there's an element of truth to that. I, uh, I, I, uh, I really don't like cliches, so uh, the wildly popular kind of stuff usually turns me off. But, you know, that, that's a... Uh, that has an element of truth to it. That, that is, that your mission is to live out this gospel message in front of people. Now, what we should also expect from 611 is that people will reject. That's why you're supposed to shake the dust off your feet. Let's, let's examine rejection in this chapter. John was rejected by people. He was accepted by some, but rejected by many. Jesus will be rejected and the twelve will be rejected. And here we're going to find how John and Jesus were rejected. Uh, Jesus rejected in Nazareth and then John rejected by the Herodian family. But we'll talk about them in a moment. But why did they reject Jesus? Let's start there. Let's look at the passage. Jesus rejected at Nazareth, verses 1 to 6. So back to verse 1. Jesus went out from there, out from there meaning Jairus' house, and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. Now, Jesus' hometown was Nazareth. He grew up there. He was born in Bethlehem, but because of the political situation, when he returned, uh, when his family returned from, uh, from fleeing, in, uh, fleeing Herod the Great's murderous rage in Egypt, when they came back, they discovered that uh, Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, was ruling over Judea and uh, decided instead to go into Galilee where, where Herod Antipas was, uh, was reigning. Now this is why they settled in Nazareth. So Jesus' hometown is Nazareth in Galilee. That's why he's called Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Jesus of Galilee. Okay. Now Capernaum was a larger fishing town on the uh, shores of the Sea of Galilee in which Jesus set up his ministry headquarters, if you will. Uh, don't imagine a, a you know several-story building here and that sort of thing, but but this was his base of operations. Capernaum was his, the base of his operations because Nazareth is kind of off the beaten path when it comes to um, uh, highways and so on. But so when when Mark says he came to his hometown, he means Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. That's what disciples do; they follow their, their teacher. Now, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? 
And what is the wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Now, at least it seems for the moment they've accepted him because they say, Oh, Jesus, welcome back. Uh, come on in, teach in the synagogue. We've heard about all the great stuff you're doing. And so it sounds at, at first like they're welcoming him. And yet, they're astonished, saying, where did, these man, where did this man get these things? Now, having a high opinion of what Jesus is doing is not the same thing as accepting him or his message. So saying, wow, that's really great, is not the same thing as saying, Jesus, we believe in you. So they're astonished. This is often the the reaction that people have to Jesus' miracles. He says, where did this man get these things and what is this wisdom given to him? Here he is teaching. He's, he's saying something that sounds just absolutely fabulous. He's probably just teaching from the prophets. But it's almost as though they're saying, you know, a guy from Nazareth shouldn't be able to do this. It's, where did this man get these things? Like, like, he stole that wisdom from somebody. You know, who's he plagiarizing? You know, he must have gotten hold of somebody's book, you know, and he's, he's got the ten great, you know, ten effective habits of great leaders or something like that. And he's, he's just copying somebody else, right? There's no way this guy could, could be responsible for this wisdom. It's not like he could be the source of all life and wisdom. No, uh-uh. And such miracles as these performed by his hands. It's, it's almost as though they're saying, he's really not the one doing this. You know, he's like, he's got this magic trick he's working on. Uh, so, so, you know, they aren't actually denying that he's doing miracles. Actually, no one from any ancient source denies that Jesus does miracles. This is attested in non-Christian sources. It's attested in Christian sources. It's attested by his enemies. It's attested by his friends. Everybody knew that Jesus was doing miracles. The question is, where do those miracles come from? And his opponents often said, these are coming from the power of Satan. These people are being agnostic about it. You know, they're being open-minded about it, they say. Uh, so open-minded that their brains fall out, so to speak. But uh, Sorry, I'm, I stole that one from Dawkins. But um, Where did this man get these things? Uh, no, but... Uh, at any rate, they're so open-minded that they refuse to accept the truth. Okay? They couldn't possibly belong, belong to him intrinsically. And here's their reason. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. As, as though his, his occupation were to limit what God could do through him. Isn't this the carpenter? Hey, you know, this is the guy who's fixed your house. This is the guy who fixed your plow when it broke. This is, this is the guy who, who helped construct your, your house when they put it up. Carpenter doesn't just mean works with wood. It could be any moldable material. So this could be stonemason, could be carpenter. Could be a worker of different, you know. So, so construction worker, perhaps. Isn't this the construction worker? Isn't this the guy who wears the hard hat? Uh, <laughs> no one with that occupation could be smart enough to say this stuff. And don't we know him? I mean, you know, we know his family. 
isn't this the son of Mary? Uh, uh, this is, by the way, this is one of those passages, just a little aside here, this is one of those passages that is often brought up uh, in terms of where's Joseph in this whole thing. The question is asked, where's Joseph? And the fact that he's called the son of Mary probably indicates that Joseph is already dead. He's, he's passed away at some point or another. We don't know why. You know, some of the later uh, infancy gospels of Jesus uh, uh, sort of speculate on the reasons, you know. Joseph grabs him by the ear and he says, uh, no, your ear is going to hurt. And Joseph lets go and you know, his ear is hurting. Th those are nonsense stuff. You know, people are just kind of w sitting around going, what was God like as a kid, you know? Uh, <clears throat> uh, we, we can't engage in that kind of speculation. But Joseph is dead, perhaps. This is why he's called the son of Mary. Uh, and then he's got brothers, by the way, um, and sisters who uh, uh, are not, by the way, brothers and sisters from another marriage of Joseph. These are, uh, they're all from Mary. Now, isn't that interesting? We know this guy. That's why we reject him. Well, wait a minute. Shouldn't you say, we think we know this guy? Because you really don't know him, right? If, if you think all he is is a carpenter, then you really don't know him. Isn't that what people do today? We know this guy. He's part of our community. He's a human being. He's a Galilean peasant, as, as some uh, scholars like to throw around. They just love saying the word peasant because it real, riles people like me up. Don't call him a peasant. He's the king of kings. By the way, peasant is just woefully anachronistic. So when somebody talks about peasants in Galilee, you go, eh, peasant is from the medieval times, so let's not go there, okay? But uh, uh, John Dominic Crossan, one of the Jesus Seminar, goes around calling Jesus a Galilean peasant, as though we know him. You know, we know what life was like. We know it was uh, a, a nasty, brutish, and short uh, in Jesus' day, so Jesus couldn't possibly have been God. We know him. That's what they're saying. And they took offense at him, it says, they stumbled over him. This is the word scandal. They were scandalized by him. They tripped on him. They couldn't get over the fact that he was saying stuff and doing stuff that they couldn't understand or explain. And isn't it interesting that when you don't accept the truth, it's hard to understand what God is doing. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, it sounds like Jesus went to uh, a British school at this point because he says, a prophet is not without honor, which means that he is not without honor means that he's dishonored in his hometown, right? You with me here? So he's got honor among people who don't know him because, uh, uh, because they can receive him because they haven't known him since he was this tall, right? And yet here, among his hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household, he is dishonored. He is rejected. Sorry to say, but his own family, 
Remember they came to, to take custody of him because they said he's crazy? He's lost his mind. Let's go get him. Put on one of those white coats with the, the sleeves that tie in the front. Let's get him. And, and so even his own family, even his own brothers didn't recognize who he was. Uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John also says the same thing in John 7. And we have a very uh, similar form of this saying in John 7 verse 44 if you want to compare uh, uh, texts. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. When you're not going to accept what Jesus is doing, he's just going to teach you the truth and you're going to keep rejecting that. And it says, he could do no miracle there. Verse 5. What do you mean he couldn't do miracles? Of course he could do miracles. Right? So people stumble over this, uh, over the, what Mark says, he could do no miracle there. But it was, like, it was as though the the people of Nazareth's rejection of him was keeping him from doing miracles. Wow. You know, don't people say, well, this, it works the other way around, doesn't it? I mean, shouldn't miracles produce faith? Well, actually, no. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be great if God lived in the middle of our camp, you know, in a tent, we could see him, you know, a cloud of... Uh, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Yeah, it would be just great. And we'd have manna coming down from heaven. Every morning you'd get up and you'd grab some food for that day. And, you know, it'd just be great. We'd have miracles going on all the time. How'd that work out for the Exodus generation? God's very presence in their camp and they still rejected Him. Wow. Miracles don't produce faith. Okay? Faith is able to accept the miracles that Jesus does, but miracles are really not the answer. And he wondered at their unbelief, even though he knew he was going to be rejected. Okay, so let's move from the rejection at Nazareth to the rejection of Jesus and his message in the person of John the Baptist. Now, King Herod, it says in verse 14, heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, the King Herod mentioned in verse 14 is not Herod the Great, but Herod Antipas. And I've put an olive tree there because, as one commentator puts, puts it, Herod's family lineage was as twisted as the trunk of an olive tree. Let's try to give you a little picture. This is a partial picture of, uh, of Herod's lineage here. Uh, Herod the Great had uh, multiple wives, three of them on the, on the screen here. Their names are not important. There'll be a quiz later. but um, <laughs> one, of his, one of his sons, Herod Philip, married Herodias. And they had a child, a daughter named Salome. And both, both of these, Herodias and Salome, appear in this passage. Now, by another, uh, uh, another uh, wife was Herod Antipas. And uh, by still another wife, 
Uh, and this isn't the Cleopatra who was friends with Julius Caesar, by the way, different Cleopatra, okay. just so you know. Uh, they had another son whose name was Philip. He was the Tetrarch. He's the one mentioned in, in Luke chapter 3. Now, just real quickly, the reason I'm putting this up here is what, I don't want you to confuse the Herod Philip who is married to Herodias with the Herod Philip who is the Tetrarch of the neighboring uh, country. Okay, Now, Antipas was married, Herod Antipas, who appears in our story here, this is the King Herod who, who appears in our story, was married to an Arabian princess, uh, a neighboring kingdom called Nabatea, and he had married uh, the daughter of, this, uh, of the king of Nabatea uh, to seal an alliance here. And he later divorced that woman, and Herodias divorced Philip to marry Antipas. And so uh, uh, Antipas married Herodias and took Salome in, I guess, as a kind of stepdaughter. As it turns out, Salome went and uh, married Uncle Philip. Uh, so, so this is, you know, this is beginning to sound more like one of those celebrity, uh, uh, you know, those entertainment shows where they talk about which celebrity is married, which celebrity, and who. And, so on. This is really tangled, isn't it? Okay. But what I want you to understand is this is Herod Antipas, who was who was the uh, he called himself king of Galilee. The Romans never called him king. The only king they ever called king was Herod the Great, and it, that was the Senate's voting the title king on him. So Herod is not really a king, but he calls himself king. So Mark says King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and that's why his, these miraculous powers are at work in him. Boy, now there's some superstition there for you. That's why Jesus, Jesus is doing these miracles, because John the Baptist is living in Jesus? What? Okay. But I do want you to see, risen from the dead. So there's these hints going on in, in the chapter. Nobody really knows what's going on. They're, they're just groping around for the truth, and the truth is escaping them. And King Herod's hearing this. Others were saying, he is Elijah. So he's, he's hearing different people in his court who are reporting this. Uh, others were saying he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But Herod heard it, and he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, is risen. I killed John, and now he's coming back to haunt me. What? like Lady Macbeth, out damned spot. She's trying to, to, to wash her hands of, of the blood. She says, not all the perfumes in Arabia could sweeten this little hand. She's guilty, Lady Macbeth, of all the crimes that she's committed. Herod is guilty of all the crimes he's committed. And uh, there were members of his household who later became Christians. We find them reported in Luke and Acts who uh, must have reported this to the Christian community, what he was saying. Now, here's, here's the sordid affair of John the Baptist. Let's run through this quickly. Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Okay, you know, marry your brother, okay, that's, that, that only works, that's only lawful if... 
the brother dies and there's no offspring, right? You can do that uh, uh, under the provisions of the laws in Leviticus. But both of their spouses were still living. Herodias divorced Philip. Antipas divorced his wife. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here's the other reason people reject John and Jesus, is that it convicts them. Now, the rejection in Nazareth was just one of indifference. Here, the rejection is one of attack. And Herodias is the one who's standing behind this. And she is very much like our culture, isn't she? Well, don't you tell me what to do. And don't you just love this? You know, the moment you say that's not moral, people say you're closed-minded. You can't legislate morality. Oh, how about this? What if I kill you? Is that moral? What if you kill me? Is that moral? Can you legislate morality? Yeah, there's laws against murder. Okay, so yeah, you can legislate morality. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Jesus and his message convict John, uh, I mean, convict Herod. John's message convicts Herod of his sin. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. Can you just see the guys showing up to arrest John? We're uh, putting you under uh, protective custody. Yeah, that's it. Protective custody. And so come with us, please. Uh, And uh, notice how Herod thinks of John. He was afraid of him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. He'd done nothing wrong, and yet Herod, under the influence of Herodias, is corrupt. And he has a superstitious respect for John. When he heard him, he was very perplexed, but used to enjoy listening to him. This is the person in the parable of the soils. You remember the person who receives the word with joy, and it springs up for a little while, and then when persecution comes... He falls away. This is the guy who listens to the word and says, isn't that nice? Isn't that a wonderful truth? God loves us. He used to enjoy listening to him. Yeah, I like a good debate, John. Tell me more again about why I shouldn't have married Herodias. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee suddenly his corruption is going to become evident. Good intentions, he kept him safe. Good intentions are no substitute for integrity. See, once the cat's out of the bag, Herod can't put it back in. He loses control of the situation now because now he's in an honor-shame situation. He's going to lose face if he doesn't. He should have read Proverbs 20, verse 28, loyalty and truth preserve the king and he upholds his throne by righteousness he wasn't even a king but still principle applies and when the daughter of Herodias verse 22 continues herself came in and danced she pleased Herod and his dinner guests and the king said to the girl ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you and he swore to her whatever you ask of me I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom and immediately you're reading this and going uh oh you know, it's like the, the, guy, the Jephthah in uh, Judges 11 or 12. It's 11. Uh, Judges 11, 
Jephthah makes this rash vow to, to Yahweh. He says, if I win this battle, first thing that comes out of my tent door, I'm going to sacrifice it. And he's coming back from the, from the battle and out comes his daughter, his one daughter. Uh, that same proverb, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 25 says, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a trap when somebody says, it is holy, that is, makes a, makes a vow, and then afterwards inquires of the Lord. Oops. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is the same thing. He says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she went out and said to her mother, uh-oh, <laughs> he shouldn't have let her consult her mother. He goes, she goes, Salome goes out to Herodias and says, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. They've got him because he's corrupt, because he wouldn't stand up for what's right. He shouldn't have married her in the first place, right? Immediately she came into the, into the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Isn't that gruesome? We're at a banquet here. Platter, John's head. Oh. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Here he is, knowing what he's about to do is absolutely wrong. It's heinous. It's a crime. And yet, because he's been put in this situation where he doesn't want to lose honor, he doesn't want to lose face, he doesn't want to be shamed in front of his dinner guests, he puts an innocent man to death. And so feeling sorry for sin is no substitute for repentance. John was saying, repent, repent. Herod feels sorry. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. Turns out that John, that, that uh, Herod really does reject who John is. He does really reject his message. It's a really macabre uh, sense of humor in uh, A Few Good Men as Tom Cruise, the lawyer, is preparing for the defense trial of uh, two Marines, you, you, know the, you know the scene? And, and his colleague is playing the, the, the role of the witness on the stand. He says, so was there any other sign of trauma to the body? Any other sign of attack or violence? A and his colleague says, you mean other than the dead body? You know, that's what I think of and I, th I think of this, like, is there any other sign of uh, Herod's rejection of John? You mean other than, like, removed his head? Um, yeah, he's put in this impossible situation. And, and they brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. I don't know what she did with it after that. But just the, just the, 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 uh, the weight of this crime that's committed by the three of them is just, uh, it's heart-wrenching. Especially John, a man who, who wanted to do nothing else but do God's will. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You see all the foreshadowing here, though? John is, is, gets killed, and people are wondering about John being raised from the dead, and here he is in a tomb. Spoiler alert, 
this is going to happen with Jesus. See, the disciples aren't expecting to be rejected. They say, oh, the king's arrived. We're going to have great power and prestige and position in his, in his kingdom. And here we are. We're just going to sweep right into Jerusalem and everything's going to be great. And Jesus is saying, no, you're going to be rejected. No, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'll be raised from the dead. No, Jesus, you can't do that. You're the king. You know, all of that going on in chapter 9 and 10 and 11. We'll get there soon enough. Not today, but uh, everything here about Jesus is pointing the same direction as for John. So rejection takes many forms. It can be indifference. It could be attack, it could be persecution, or it could even be people killing us. And we have to be prepared for the, the range of that rejection and indifference. Fortunately, none of us, perhaps, have, have had to face, uh, face death. We've got brothers and sisters out there in Christ, even today, who may be beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. Think of them and pray for them to remain steadfast in living out the gospel. And so in the meantime, it is our settled aim to live out the gospel in front of people in spite of rejection, knowing that it's going to happen, realizing that God is working out His plan and the King is working his kingdom into human history when ultimately when Jesus comes back there will be a physical manifestation of Jesus' kingdom. Ultimately kings will shut their mouths because of him but in the meantime he is that person with no stately form or majesty. Nothing that would be attractive Everything looks ordinary in Him. Everything looks ordinary in us. And yet God is working extraordinary things in what He's doing. So remain steadfast and hopeful. Remain committed to God's purpose and plan, recognizing that His provision will be there for us. Recognizing that if the forerunner experienced rejection, if Jesus experienced rejection, if the twelve experienced rejection, we will as well. And what God will ultimately ask of us is that we remain faithful regardless of what we encounter, regardless of the obstacles. Because even though John was rejected, even though John was killed, he was faithful. He remained faithful to the end. And so even though we might not end up being killed for our faith, doesn't it make sense that whatever rejection that we experience, whatever persecution that we experience, is just small potatoes. I mean, what's the worst they could do to you? They could kill you? You go to be with Jesus. They persecute you? Wow. That's what Jesus said would happen. So, hey, it's all small stuff, and don't sweat the small stuff. Let's pray.
Father, we're grateful for the man of Galilee, the Son of Man, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is despised and rejected. And we once were part of those who rejected him. But by your grace, you have opened our eyes to see and to accept, to come to faith in him who was wounded for our transgressions and on whom you caused our sin to fall. Father, help us to put the suffering that we endure and the rejection that we endure into the perspective that you want us to have and to remain faithful in spite of what comes. And now dismiss us with your grace and peace upon us because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.